0: Indeed. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, looking today at verses 6 through 16. Well, today we're talking about one of the most incredible truths, privileges that we have as believers. Very simply, it is that we are indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit, as believers in Christ. You probably knew that, right? And, and you can kind of like yawn because, yeah, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that changes everything or not. Because if we neglect or ignore this truth, our lives will be pretty much like any unbeliever out there and maybe more miserable. But if we embrace and invest in this truth that God lives within us, he seeks to teach us, transform us, empower us in ways that are truly supernatural. We're going to start our study really in verse 6, but we're going to jump for a moment to verses 9 and 10 where we see this main point. Verse 9 and 10, first of all. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind or heart has conceived what God has prepared for for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. So we can't understand, but we can understand is is the point. Most of the smartest people in the world we're going to see in verses 6 and 7 cannot understand this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom, Paul says, among the mature, not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. Why is he talking about the wisdom that we speak versus the world? It's because in the, in the book of Corinthians so far, we have seen that he describes how the world sees us who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. They see that as foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Paul says, I get that. He understands that. But he says, we do speak a message of wisdom to the mature. The mature here, I think, are simply describing believers versus unbelievers. So the world with all of its smart people, they they feel like they're the elite, they're the grown-ups. No, actually, those who have the spiritual truth of the Word of God through the Spirit of God were the grown-ups. He says, I'm speaking to you Corinthians, the mature. So picture this. Um, We kind of know the Corinthian church, if you've studied or read the book before, is kind of an immature Church, And he's going to talk about that in chapter 3, actually, next week. But I don't think that's his point here yet. He's saying, do you realize, Christians, there in Corinth, you have insights that the world doesn't have. He's writing to people who are, are maybe sitting on the floor of Gaius's house or the church of Corinth that met, and they're trying to sink in this, the same thing in their hearts that we are in these nice chairs to say, you mean so God lives within us? And that means we have wisdom that's not like the wisdom of the people of this world or of this age who are coming to nothing. And so they can think that we are foolish because we believe that eternity, where we will be one moment after we die, is determined by whether we have put our faith in Christ who died on that cross and rose again. That sounds crazy. He says, that's okay. And so people like Paul and you and me In other ministries where we are preaching the gospel of Christ crucified will seem crazy, and and that's okay. In fact, in verses 4 and 5, just before this, Paul even said, my preaching wasn't that great. Didn't have wise or persuasive words, and that's okay, verse 5, so that no one will put their faith in man's wisdom but in God's power. The gospel stands on its own two feet. God's power is the point. So we can't talk anybody into believing in Christ. We can tell them. But God's power, God's wisdom, and we'll see, through the Holy Spirit, is the way anyone will be convinced. So we speak. Though people think we're foolish, verse 6, we speak a message that is true wisdom. It's it's true. And the rulers of this age, what they believe is going to come to nothing. They, 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 are, they are running off the edge of a cliff spiritually as they come to the end of their life to discover the tragic reality of eternal judgment. But not you, Corinthians. Not us, open door, if you've put your faith in Christ alone. So we can, we can sit here and read the Word of God with complete confidence. Confidence knowing that one moment after we die, we will be with Jesus in heaven, where he does make everything new. So it's an amazing truth, Paul says, that has been told us, but is otherwise. How does he describe it in verse 7? God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. So That second term, actually, the word hidden is a a form of the word mystery. Paul talks about the mysteries of the the faith as being new things that were not fully known in the Old Testament. So like in Ephesians, the church, Jew and Gentile together, that's that's a mystery. But so is the full understanding of what God has prepared for us in salvation. Yes, in Isaiah 53, you find Jesus Uh, prophesied as the one who's going to bear our iniquities. So there's something we do know that was prophesied, but in terms of really understanding the full scope of the gospel and what happened on the cross and what it means to be in Christ, this is all new. And so we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden, and that God, however, destined for our glory before time begins. So he didn't just make, God didn't just make this thing up. To be something new now, it was actually what he had in his mind from the moment he decided I'm going to create a world, I'm going to create people in my image so I can have an eternal relationship with them, and so I'm going to need to send a savior to pay for their sin, and I got to go myself. <coughs> that was the plan, that's what we were destined for, and it's interesting, he says, destined for our glory, there is nothing so glorious as some of the truths we just sang about. There's nothing so glorious as knowing what God has prepared for us. In contrast, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age, basically the rulers means people who are in charge on earth. And I think he's picturing in particular those who were in charge when christ was crucified so it's not just jews or just romans it's it's everybody who was involved the jewish sanhedrin they were the rulers of the jews they decided to condemn jesus in their in their nighttime court setting and to bring that accusation before pilate and pilate was the roman ruler assigned by by caesar for for governing that area and he's the one who went along with it and condemned jesus to the cross They didn't get it. The rulers of this age, they didn't understand it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's not that they couldn't know because Jesus had been there for those three plus years revealing who he was by what he said, by the miracles he did. They could have known, but they chose not to understand and believe the truth. So they are eternally responsible for their own state eternally. They would not have crucified the Lord of Glory if they really had embraced it and known the truth. So it's a it's a sad but amazing paradox that those who had the authority to crucify Jesus were unwittingly accomplishing the purpose of Jesus. Those who hated Jesus were accomplishing. The Father's love for the world. God so loved that he gave his only Son. They crucified the Lord of glory. So after saying that this was destined for our glory, we would be experiencing glory forever in heaven, he's actually describing Jesus then as the Lord of glory, the Lord we will see in all of his glory someday. So we know God's most glorious plan, that God would save us as sinners and take us into a glorious eternity. So we, he's just contrasting the world doesn't understand. Sadly, they don't understand, but we have the, the insider trading information. We have traded our sins to the cross and receive by faith his righteousness on our account. It's, it's the most grand eternal truth possible. But then he attempts to go in those verses we read to begin with to say there's even more than we can ever imagine. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind, some of you have the word heart, has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The, uh, verse 9 is essentially a, a uh, quote from Isaiah 64, verse 4 with just a little bit of rephrasing, but it's basically saying that what God has planned for us in his whole plan of our salvation is far more than we can take in. Our eyes have seen a lot of impressive things. Heavens declare the glory of God, northern lights, or whatever else science reveals to you in a microscope or telescope. We go on vacation and see amazing things that God has created, but we haven't seen everything that God has prepared. Our ears hear amazing things. You've probably been at some kind of music event where you're, you're just blown away with the skills. We hear brilliant minds speak or see what they have written and information that just impresses us, but you haven't heard something as great as what God's prepared for those who love him. Our heart or our mind cannot even conceive or daydream or imagine or write about or sing about what God has prepared for those who love him. As you read that, I I think there's a good question to ask. Is he talking about what Christians experience here on earth, that he's prepared for us on earth, or is he talking about what God has prepared for us in heaven? Because the verse doesn't limit it. I don't think we should. I think the whole plan of salvation from the time you put your faith in him until forever. The things that God has prepared. So I think it's right to, to use this verse at a funeral to say we have no idea how amazing it is what God has prepared. But I think it's also describing the greatness of God's plan for us on, set, on earth. you realize if you have placed your faith in Christ... You don't have to fear death, while the rest of the world does. That's pretty amazing. If you have put your faith in Christ, you you don't do life alone. No matter what your family situation, you have a family. It's called the body of Christ, the church, and there's local affiliates everywhere. We're one of them. So you don't do life alone. That's pretty amazing. Part of the benefits package of salvation is God has gifted you with some unique ability, gift, by which you can glorify God and serve people, thus giving meaning and eternal purpose to what you do with your life. The world doesn't know that. It's mind-boggling. But God has dumped the whole load of spiritual blessings on us, and we unfold what that all involves as we read the Scriptures. But the world of otherwise smart people, the wisdom of this age, they fear death. And they don't have a spiritual family. And they're grasping for purpose here because they don't have the eternal purpose of life. It's for those who love God. And then after all of those benefits that we enjoy on earth, there's heaven. Even as believers... We can only imagine what it will be like when we walk by his side. That'd make good lyrics to a song, wouldn't it? (laughs) To see Christ in all of his glory, to somehow have an understanding fully of of Christ and, and God the Father, because in some way we are made to be like him so we can be in his presence. We know a lot about eternity that others don't know, will personally be united with Christ in a visual, tangible, physical way and reunited with loved ones who have passed away and are with him now. Able to have conversations that fill in the blanks of what we did not understand here on earth unless we don't even care at that point. We can hardly imagine. Unbelievers have no clue. But the point of verses 9 and that first line of verse 10 is not that we don't know. Kind of, again, ironically, he's saying, oh, but we do know. But God, verse line, first line of verse 10, but God has revealed us it to us by the Spirit. So the point is not what we don't know, but actually that we do know so much. The church in Corinth, again, kind of known for its immaturity. Paul begins talking to them not by, you know what, you guys just don't know enough. He actually assures them by saying, you know what you know? You know so much because you understand the gospel. I'm telling you how much you know, not how little you know, and and so that you would appreciate what you already know and you know it because you love him he has prepared that for those who love him and he's writing to these corinthians with all of their struggles and says you do love him don't you we have a room full of people that love god right now why else would you be here at eight o'clock in the morning right you love god you love singing praises to god you love god's people That's why you serve him. That's why you give. That's why you maybe prepare lessons for kids or whatever it is that God has called you to do. And that's who you are. You are a lover of God. And so God has prepared amazing things for you. And and Paul meant this to be a huge encouragement even to these squabbling, immature Corinthians. Because he realizes that When we begin to focus on that which God has done for us and that which God has prepared for us, we look at things different. The the things that we thought were so important to, to fight about diminish. God wants us to focus on the full scope of our salvation, what he's prepared for us. But sadly, so often we are so like other humans, just absorbed in the now Our selfish pursuits, our our earthly issues, and they're all important. But we can go weeks, we can go months without even thinking about the assurances we have and appreciating them, or thinking about the other 99.999% of our life that will be lived on the other side of death. And we just don't even think about it. So he says, that's why I'm reminding you No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Start to think about that because actually He has revealed a lot of truth through His Spirit. How's that work? I don't see the Spirit. I don't audibly hear the Spirit. But somehow we know God's thoughts through the Spirit, through the Word of God. And, and so, after contrasting saying, the world thinks we don't know anything, actually, we know a lot, and we know it by His Spirit. He says, now let me talk to you about how that works, that the Spirit gives us access to so much truth. So much of God's thoughts are known. We know everything God wants us to know about Him and about this life. So while the world is putting you down, saying, what's the big deal with this Jesus stuff? Paul says, no, we embrace the fact that we follow Christ because we know eternal truth. So how's it work that God revealed it by his spirit? Well, middle of verse 10, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Interesting how he describes this. He's kind of stating the obvious. So, so who knows God's thoughts? Well, the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit searches all things. So the Holy Spirit is God, right? Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three persons, one God. They're distinct, but they're co-equal. So the Holy Spirit knows all things, The Spirit of God would know all things beca- that God thinks because He is actually God. And, but he makes a point with an illustration saying, So who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? So in other words, I don't know what you're thinking right now. Only you know what you're thinking. When you're looking down, I don't even know if you're looking at Facebook or, or your Bible or you know, picking at your fingernails. I don't know what you're thinking because you are you. You know your thoughts. And, and it's, it's almost like, I think it's almost a sense of humor saying, you know, no one knows what someone else is thinking except that the Spirit knows what God is thinking. And guess what? The Spirit lives in you so that you can know what God is thinking. It's stating the obvious, but it's drawing attention to the truth that we need to understand that we have access to God's thoughts because we have the Spirit of God. Verse 12, we have not received the Spirit of the world, little s, but the Spirit, capital S, who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So after saying that the Spirit's the only one who knows what God thinks, he says, and guess what? You have the Holy Spirit within you so that you can know the thoughts of God. You have the ultimate insider information. Let's review a little bit of the truth that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to do this for you. He's talking to the disciples, uh, John 14, the day before he goes to the cross. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you, uh, future tense. Because as Jesus was speaking, it was still before the church age. He was still speaking under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, in which the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully functioning, but came upon individuals temporarily for certain occasions or seasons and purposes. The Spirit came upon Saul. The Spirit came upon David. But he says, I'm going to tell you something. The Holy Spirit, for you guys after the death and resurrection of Christ i'm going to send the spirit so he'll be with you forever and always every believer always will have the spirit is it a, that's one of the hidden truths of salvation this is the big one that god is going to actually indwell us later on in this study of first corinthians when he's making an appeal to them to live morally pure, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, in you, whom you have received from God, this truth? So the Holy Spirit now does not dwell on the Ark of the Covenant in a temple at a certain location. We are the temple. Individually and corporately, the Spirit of God is dwelling in us. And in fact, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the, the mark of whether you are saved. Everyone who is saved has the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, that means you're saved. He comes in and dwells us the moment we believe. And so that started at the day of Pentecost. So, when's the last time you thought about the Spirit living within you? When's the... When's the last time you thought about the fact that he knows your every thought, and he knows all the thoughts of God? And so you have a connection with God 24-7. When Paul was describing how we do spiritual battle, the belt of truth, the Word of God, we need all these, the helmet of salvation, he wrapped it by saying, and pray always in the Spirit. Basically, every time you pray, you're praying in the Spirit. The only way you can pray is that the Spirit of God is communicating to God on your behalf as you pray. So pray in the Spirit. That's where your spiritual victory will be found. You are never alone. You have 24-7 access. You are in a conversation, if you want to be, with God. You are in a relationship continually with God because Verse 12 tells us that we have received the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. The first part of that verse says, we've not received the Spirit of the world. Uh, The Spirit of the world, it, it may refer specifically to Satan or just the effects of Satan, that there is... There, there are false ideas. The world, while we, while we hold the truth that the Spirit speaks to us, from the world of unbelievers is getting false intel all the time. Why would somebody churn out false information? Who would it be that is 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 presenting a false playbook of life constantly? That would be Satan. John 8:44 Jesus said of Satan When he Satan lies he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies In one simple statement Jesus describes Satan with the word lying 3 times When he speaks his native language he's a liar and the father of lies that's just what he does So as the God, little g, of this world, or the spirit of the world, little s, he is filling our society with untruths. Uh, And if we are absorbed in the ideas of the world almost all the time, and in the word of God, very tiny bit of time, we are very susceptible to false ideas and values of the world money will make you happy buying stuff will do that for you you need to win every argument those, those are just ideas of the world love is love a way of saying that any kind of sexual intimacy is okay just a couple generations ago even our culture understood what was moral and what was immoral our culture has shifted have you shifted with it because the word of god is unchanged we can't be fuzzy where the bible is clear that's the spirit of the world instead of the spirit of God. And, and we have to realize that our, our, our children, our grandchildren, and until Christ returns, will be in this world of falsehoods. But Paul writes this not just to warn and especially not to discourage us, but to encourage us because we have received the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us be encouraged as a believer in christ you can understand spiritual truth and you can understand right and wrong you can know god's thoughts and follow what god says be encouraged and it's not just about morality but he 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 he, he teaches us how to be good parents Holding that balance of love and discipline. He teaches it what it, mean, what it means to be a, a, a godly husband, a godly wife, because we're accountable for those things eternally. He can teach us how to handle money wisely, how to think about money wisely, biblically. And so the Spirit of God is always speaking to us how. It's through words. Through words. So Paul now transitions in verse 13 from just saying we have the Spirit of God to describing what the Spirit of God does in us and how Paul has been used to communicate the Word of God that the Spirit uses in the lives of the Corinthians. Verse 13, this is what we speak, Paul says, we, me, the apostles who are teaching, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So we, are speak, we aren't We making anything up, Paul says, when we come teaching about Jesus or salvation or anything about your Ephesians family or, or anything that we'll find in Corinthians, some very practical things. We aren't making anything. These are not our ideas. But rather the Spirit is teaching. Words taught by the spirit. Now the unique part about Paul teaching was that he indeed was an apostle, and uniquely he was a prophet of God. A prophet of God is someone who hears directly from God. And God obviously needed prophets on earth in the absence of a complete scripture. And as Paul is writing this, he is actually writing scripture, so we know that scripture was not yet complete. But God's revelation to man either came through prophets who could speak with absolute certainty, 100% authority, or else it came when he revealed something that was to be permanently written and given to us. But the process is essentially the same in that the Spirit still teaches us today how? Through words. It's pretty amazing to think that the God of the universe, who created all things, who knows all things, who controls all things, decided that he wants his thoughts to be known to those he made in his image and with whom he has a relationship. He says, I want you to know what I am thinking. I want you to know everything you need to know. You go to a job and and, and you're, well, just figure it out. No, there's a complete manual here so that we know exactly everything we need to know And here's how it works, this last phrase, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Now, whatever Bible translation you're looking at, there's a little bit of, like, how do you express this final statement that has the word spiritual twice? Because especially the second term, we don't know if he's talking about spiritual people or spiritual words because it's, it's, it's linguistically vague, but it doesn't really change the meaning. Paul taught what the Spirit told him to teach to people who were spiritually capable of understanding it, meaning believers. And that's still what God does. The Spirit teaches us through the written word that which we who are spiritual, he'll call us later, we who have the Spirit of God are able to understand. The source of the information is unchanged, whether it was Paul. Who, as a prophet, was receiving new information to complete writing scripture, or whether it is us today who have the advantage of holding it in our hand in black and white, all the revelation of God, the source is unchanged, it all comes to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's pretty obvious we need to be invested. If you want to know God's thoughts, we've got to be invested heavily in the Word of God. It came to us right from the Spirit. Peter wrote, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So the prophets are the one who gave us the Scripture, right? But they didn't say, Hmm, I wonder what I should say about this. How did it work? For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is this... Incredible process of inspiration. Uh, All scripture is inspired by God, Paul told Timothy. So what does it mean? It means that somehow, and again, this is like one of those things, how did that work exactly? But where, where the person that God was inspiring to write scripture, Paul, 13 letters, was writing using his thoughts, but God was superintending his thoughts, so he wrote everything exactly and precisely and accurately that God wanted him to write. Though human, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And thus, we today know God's very words and thus his thoughts. God inspired it as the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, the New Testament written in the Greek language, and we have a plethora of of English translations to reliably know exactly what God wants us to do. Paul taught God's Word, wrote much of it, so we have it all today. Now, as I, as I or you teach the Word of God to somebody, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I, God can help and guide me to prepare a message, but my words have to be tested against the Word because I can only teach that which has already been revealed, and then God can use it and apply it to your life. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who have a desire, it seems, and they claim that God speaks to them directly. And so you'll hear statements like, God told me. That instantly brings a lot of skepticism to me, as if they have new, specific information. And the question would be, so, so you're saying that God has told you something fully knowable, specifically equal on authority of Scripture. And it's it's not so. We have God's complete revelation, and we have His Spirit to apply it to the specific situations in our life. So if the Bible is complete and does not address our specific situation, does that mean we cannot get Specific guidance? No, it doesn't mean that. Because the Holy Spirit works within us to guide us to our decisions, but never contrary to the Word of God. Be careful, though, that you don't just say, God is leading me to do this, in parenthesis, because I want it to be so. It was on sale. It must be God's leading. It was half price. Maybe that's not God speaking. But, but let's say you really do want God's wisdom on a purchase. You're considering buying your first house or something like that. And you want, you want to know what God is saying to you. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit did inspire James 1 verse 5 which says, if you lack wisdom ask of God. He's a real liberal giver. Giver of wisdom. And so if we're supposed to pray and ask God for wisdom, then it would be really good for you to ask others to pray for something that you are seeking wisdom for. And when it comes time to make that decision, realize that God also inspired, Proverbs 15.22 tells us there's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Counselors is an assumption that there's, there's people who are going to be objective, godly, experienced, And so if you have some people like that in your life and you're praying for wisdom, you're asking other people to pray for wisdom about an important decision, then you ask a multitude of counselors who might not all give you the precise same answer. And sometimes they give you an answer that you didn't want to hear. But you're saying, well, I'm going to listen to God and, and God can use these people. And it's amazing how God can begin to direct you. The Spirit using His Word, using His people in his way but don't expect a voice from heaven or an answer in the clouds like we often wish most of you know the church is in search of a uh, new youth and family pastor even though we really love the one we have now and if that's if that's a new information to you pick up the sheet at the back explaining how the transitions uh, that we anticipate but I would really like if the Holy Spirit would give us his name. Then I could Google it, and we would just go get him, okay? And it would just be a nice way to, but that's not how that works. Instead, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write twice in the New Testament a list of qualifications of of, of spiritual leaders in a church, okay? And so we are, we are looking for someone who is successfully striving towards those character traits. And then <clears throat> God has given us a team of leaders, we call them elders and deacons, and we've formed a, a search team within that, to, to search for someone that would fit those qualifications and would fit our church. And we're asking you to pray and ask for wisdom from God. Who gives to all liberally the kind of wisdom that we will need for something so important to us, but to His plan? See, God made sure the Corinthians would know everything they needed to know about salvation, assurances on earth, life in heaven, sustain, uh, strength and encouragement, wisdom in relationships. Often Christians can be discouraged because of the things that God just doesn't seem to direct and address. But the point is to first follow all that we do know that he does address. He's told us so much of his thoughts. Then Paul returns to the sadness of the unbelieving world. There's been a contrast back and forth here, right? Verse 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit, indeed, pretty much this whole sermon, everything in this passage will seem basically foolish. That's not how life works, but that's the natural man. It's not even calling him horrible sinners, is it? It just that just when you don't have the Spirit, you're just functioning with human minds and you don't know God's thoughts what are you going to do? So your co-workers won't understand why you believe there's one way to heaven and it's through Jesus God's only son who paid the price for our sins and rose again that doesn't seem right shouldn't there be many ways? And your fellow students or relatives might wonder well, why is that such a big deal? why, why do you do that? Why don't you do this? Why do you go to church like every week? That's okay. These are, these are things that says in verse 14, they are spiritually discerned. To them it's foolishness, but, but you have spiritual discernment of the believer because you have the Holy Spirit, because you have the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is working through the Word of God and has given you the priorities and the direction and the morals and the ethics and the decision-making that you have. It's, it's an amazing privilege. The unbeliever doesn't have that. But now verse 15, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. And here the, the term spiritual man, I think just simply is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a synonym for believer. I used to think more that this was talking about the spiritually mature person, but I think he really holds off on that discussion until what we look at next week in chapter three. He just says, You guys guys claim to be spiritual, right? Because you have the Spirit? That's good. That's true. That means you have the capacity to have discernment. So he's not elevating a certain number of Christians. He's saying all believers, the spiritual man who has the Spirit, can make discernments about all these things. You, You hear the beat of a different drum. And so, in in the practical things of life, you know how to make discerning decisions. Do more of this. Be more like this. Don't click on that link. Forgive your friend, wife, husband. Don't send that text. Go fellowship even when you don't feel like it. Whatever it might be, we, are getting, we have spiritual discernment about those things because we are spiritual. We have the Spirit within us. We can make judgments as the man, the woman, the teen who knows Christ. And these decisions will, make, will determine the direction of our life. They'll determine if we will do things that will, will destroy, hurt us, or help us and help others uh, Whether it will stimulate spiritual growth or whether it will set us back a few stages. The spiritual man makes judgment of all things. But he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't let anybody tell us what to do. The contrast between believer and unbeliever is saying you don't have to worry that the world doesn't agree with you. That they think you're crazy. It keeps coming back to that foolishness issue. We aren't subject to what the world's values are. We're we're actually shaking free of the world's values because we are laser-focused on what the Word of God says and the Spirit applies to our life. They won't understand our convictions or confidences. Paul wraps this up with a quote again from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 13, with an amazing promise. Tack to the end of it. "For For who has known the mind of the Lord... That he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. It's another one of these paradoxes. Who can know what God all knows? When you read uh, Isaiah 40 verse 30, that whole chapter actually, Isaiah 40, is describing the, the vastness of God, including His vast wisdom. His thoughts are so far beyond us, we can't know all of His thoughts, and we can't instruct him. We can't tell him what to do. And so while we're thinking, yeah, you're right, He's saying he knows so much. And, we... and then he says, but actually, on the other hand, we have the mind of Christ. So that we do know a lot. So on one hand, we know we can't know everything. But on the other hand, we realize we know a lot because we have the Holy Spirit. And thus, we know the mind of Christ. We know what Christ wants us to do because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And we are believers in Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling us who knows all the thoughts of God's, and therefore, we can do that which God has directed us to do. So I hope we are learning to hear the Spirit through the Word of God. Just a fast review of what we've learned today. The Holy Spirit inspired God's Word. So this is not like any other book. The Holy Spirit personally prompts us how to apply God's Word as we read it, it doesn't just like, osmosis, holding it, having it, as we read it, God does that with his spirit, and then, and we didn't even get to this one, but the Holy Spirit gives us the power to obey God's word as we choose to do it, Paul doesn't address that here, but he does so many other places, Galatians 5, since we live by the spirit, you know, he's given us our life. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. We are spiritual. We have the Spirit indwelling us. So if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The term is actually like marching, okay? This is exactly where, I know exactly where I need to go. And he applies it to their situation and their sin issues. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. The only way we're going to get over the conceit, provoking, and envying is if we keep in step with the Spirit. And essentially that's what Paul's going to do as we come next week to chapter 3 as well, to say, okay, guys, you are spiritual, but let me point out some problems where you are acting, living contrary to who you are as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are privileged this morning to review this truth. That we're a temple in which you dwell we are not like the people who reject jesus christ as savior we are indwelt we are enabled to understand what is in your word that you've already revealed in your spirit using your word and your people in our minds and our faithfulness seeks to direct us in the important decisions of life help us to follow that which you are directing by your spirit in jesus name amen